Hey, good morning, Providence. Welcome here. My name is Jared. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's good to be with you sharing that very psalm, Psalm 7, this morning. And as we start off, um, I want to ask you a question. The question is this, how do you respond when you are wronged? Think about this. How do you particularly, how do you react when you are wronged by someone else, particularly when someone else has used their words to slander you? You know, I was curious what the world would have to say to this, so I went to the most trustworthy, reliable source. I googled it, right? And uh, what came up uh, very quickly is the top 10 celebrity slander cases. And so, of course, I uh, clicked on it and I wanted to read, how does the world respond when they're wrong? And so one of the first ones I came upon was Katie Holmes. Now, uh, you know, Katie Holmes is an actress. And what happened was uh, Star Magazine, a very trustworthy source, of course, uh, Star Magazine wrote an article about her a few years back and claimed that she was a drug addict, Well, Ms. Holmes didn't like that very much to the tune of a $50 million lawsuit. When she was wronged, she went after them for $50 million. A little bit later down the list, I saw Hulk Hogan. Um, (laughs) Once again, a reputable man. Uh, Hulk Hogan, uh, his ex-wife, I can't remember what her name was, um, he had claimed that uh, while they were together that he was uh, having an affair in another relationship with Brutus the Barber Beefcake. For those of you old school wrestling fans, you probably didn't see that one coming. And so um, what he did when he was wronged, he didn't like that, and so he went after his ex-wife for a lot of money in a lawsuit. The next one I saw was Scarlett Johansson. Uh, Scarlett uh, had the unfortunate incident of there was this French author that wrote her uh, as a character into the book, using her name and everything. And in this Uh, In this book, this author wrote her as a person who had multiple affairs within uh, the course of this story that he wrote. And Scarlett was like, wait, that's defaming my character. That's not okay. And so she sued this author for over $50,000. And so you see what celebrities do when you wrong them, when you slander their name. They go after you, right? They respond by trying to sue you for every last dollar. Now, What about you? Now, I'm guessing that for you, if you're at, say, your family 4th of July celebration and your aunt starts talking some stuff about you, maybe gossiping around the grill when you're not there and then you find out about it, you're probably not going to sue her for $50,000, right? But what do you do? How do you respond if if one of your friends uh, or who you thought was a friend starts telling lies about you to some of your other friends? How do you respond um, if maybe a coworker at work uh, kind of throws your name under the bus? Maybe the boss is mad about something because it didn't go well and there needs to be a scapegoat in the situation. Your coworker doesn't want to get in trouble, and so they throw your name out. How do you respond to that? What about um, for some of you, you've maybe been mistreated, called names, maybe uh, spewed hateful speech at for maybe the simple fact that you're a follower of Jesus. How do you respond to that? For some of you, maybe you've had an ex who has slandered your name and drug it through the mud. How do you respond to any of these things? Now, being wronged, specifically by slander, can, can run from anything from gossiping about little white lies to, to someone publicly and, and very hatefully trying to 
to shame you in some way. And so there's kind of this whole spectrum of things, and my guess is that all of us, to some degree or another, have, have been a victim of this along the spectrum. And so the question is, how do we respond? As we catch up with David in Psalm 7, you're going to see that he finds himself exactly in this situation. There is someone or a group of people who have come against him and accused him of something that he's actually not guilty of. His name is being slandered. And it appears that there are like hordes of people that are turning against him because of this. He finds himself in an interesting situation. Charles Spurgeon calls Psalm 7 the song of the slandered saint. And I think Psalm 7 is going to challenge us in some unique and interesting ways for how we actually, as followers of Jesus, respond when we get slandered. Martin Luther had this really challenging quote about Psalms like Psalm 7 and Psalms like Psalm 6, which Jordan referred to earlier, which we talked about last week. Um, they're the Psalms when, when David or a psalmist finds himself in, in, in very... Uh, in a very, very rough spot, in a very tough spot. Luther said this. He said, David made psalms. He said, we will also make psalms and sing them as well as we can to the honor of our Lord and to spite and mock the devil. The idea is, is that our lifestyle, our words and our actions in reaction to life situations are going to write a psalm, as it were. It's going to speak to the people around us, just like David wrote psalms in the middle of this. And when the world gets slandered, the world's version of a psalm is, go after them personally and take them down. Take vengeance. What would your psalm read like when you're wronged? So the challenge for this morning, as we think about this, as we go through this text, is very simply throughout to continue to ask yourself, as I look at my life, as I look at my actions, what psalm is my life actually writing when I'm wronged? So here's what Psalm 7 is going to look like. We're going to see first, in three different pieces, we're going to see David first, he turns to God. That's the very first thing he does. Then we're going to see the second part, that that David prays that God would take action. And then thirdly, David steps back and he lets God take action. So he prays, or excuse me, he turns, he prays, and then he lets God take action. So I want to dive into this. And as we do, I just want to throw out a, a little caveat here. This is not going to be a 10 quick steps or a how to on how to treat somebody, when to talk to them, who to talk to, how to address a specific situation. This is more of an overarching kind of view of a spiritual response when you're wronged. So this won't answer every question, but this gets behind the heart of how we treat this. And so we're going to look at at David first turning to the Lord. Let's look at Psalm uh, 7, verse 1. We're going to read these first couple verses. It says this, O Lord my God, in you do I take refuge. Save me from all my pursuers and deliver me, lest like a lion they tear my soul apart, rending it in pieces with none to deliver. O Lord my God, if I have done this, if there is wrong in my hands, if I have repaid my friend with evil or plundered my enemy without cause, let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it. Let him trample my life to the ground and lay my glory in the dust. Okay, that's the first section. Now, if you have a Bible or even a Bible uh, app in front of you, in the superscript, the the part that's written before verse 1, you see a couple things that are kind of interesting. First, it calls this a shigayon or something like that. And you know what? 
Scholars have no idea what that means. Everyone has a guess, but the idea is it's probably a kind of a song. It might be a lament of sort. It might be the tone of the song that you have. So that's what it says. And then right after that, it says David writes this concerning Cush. And you know what else scholars don't know? They don't know who Cush is either. But scholars assume a lot of people uh, think that maybe Cush is a, a kind of a code name for Saul. Some people think it's a name representing some of Saul's tribe or some of his people, some of his camp. Other people think that, that it might be uh, a representation of Shimei, the, the kind of crazy guy in, in 2 Samuel 16 that, that literally throws things at, at David and hurls insults at him. We don't really know exactly who this is, but he writes it towards someone who he's calling Cush the Benjamite. And here's what we do know. David was being torn down by the slander of someone else, and and David was confident that he was innocent and that he was confident in his God. Now, you can actually find a little bit out about this scenario. If you look at verse 4, it kind of tells us a little bit about what the charges were. It says, if I've repaid my friend with evil or plundered my enemy without cause, he had, in other words, he'd been accused of repaying a friend with evil. He'd kind of plundered, he'd been accused of plundering an enemy or taking things that weren't Uh, rightfully his, and in response to this, David says in verse 3, you'll see it, he says, if there's any wrong in my hands, if I've done this at all, he said, let the enemy, he says in verse 5, let the enemy overtake my soul and trample my life. Now, he was a man, although David sinned, and he sinned a few times pretty egregiously, he was a God-fearing man man who kind of had a pattern of two things. The first thing that you'll notice, if you're familiar with David's life at all, is that he kind of had a pattern of being wronged by people, of people turning on him and trying to turn other people against him. This was part of David's story in the New Testament. That's the first thing. But the second thing is, is he had this pattern of trusting in God and turning to God in hard times. You can see this in the Psalms. We have like a, like a firsthand eyewitness view of his journal entries, basically, by looking at these psalms, we see that over and over and over, whether it's sorrow and despair, like Psalm 6, whether it's in this place where people are slandering his name, whether his enemies are physically trying to attack him, he has this pattern of turning to the Lord. You see that in verse 1 at the very beginning where it says David, it describes David's response. The very first thing he does, what does it say? O Lord my God in you I take refuge. It's the first thing he does. And so for the second week in a row, I want to ask you the question that when you're wronged, what is the very first thing that you do? When, when times get tough like this, what's the very first thing that you do? I think for me, the first thing that I do, I, I usually go and complain about the person who's wronged me. I usually maybe go try to slander their name a little bit to make myself feel a little bit better, right? Or sometimes, because my wife is just very encouraging, I'll maybe text her about it, and then she'll just cheer me up by telling me things she likes about me or something. But I usually try to to respond, and a lot of times it's not turning to God first. Do you turn to God? Theologian uh, Sinclair Ferguson gives this a very simple but helpful illustration. He said, he said, if you take two quarters, I don't, I don't have any quarters on me because I don't carry change. Does anyone carry change in 2018? But if I had them, imagine I was holding them. He said, if you take two quarters, you hold them out right here. 
he said, you can see clearly what's on these coins from this far away, but they only take a very, very small percentage of the entire picture that I can see with my eyes right now. But the closer you move them, you move them closer and closer and closer till they're right up next to my eyeballs. They literally become the only thing that I can see. Ferguson said, before you think about your nightmare, think about your refuge. If you take this this travesty that's happened and you hold it up to here, you may see a, a very clouded picture. You see only that nightmare that's right in front of your face. And when you do that, it's not very easy to see the hugeness of God. It's not very easy to see God's story that he's weaving in and out of this. It's not very, see, very easy to see other people's story that he could be using to encourage you or, or what else he might be calling you into or how else he might be moving. And so the, the, the urge from Ferguson as he was uh, breaking down these verses was to not hold that right up, not hold your nightmare right up next to your eyes. Hold it in perspective so you can see the context of the entirety of how God is moving in light of this situation that God has complete control of. You might say, okay, great, Jared, but what am I supposed to do? How do I, how do I actually do that? Well, could we begin providence by aiming to be a people who are disciplined? Right when things hit, right Right when slander hits our ears, right when the insecurity of that moment hits our hearts, and right when, when that anger and that vengeance comes into our mind, could we be a people who, who stop? We're disciplined and we stop right there and we say, okay, this is not good, but God, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to turn to you right now. In spite of whatever may come next, whatever the situation may present, I'm going to turn to you and I'm going to claim you're still my refuge. Could we be a people who are disciplined in that way? Providence, could we aim that turning to the Lord may be the first part of the psalm that our lives write? So that's David's first simple response. A very simple response, just to turn to the Lord. Then it gets more complex from there. And so I want to look at the next couple verses and look at point two, and that is pray that God takes Action. So we're going to start in verse 6 and read a couple of verses, and we're going to look at how God, or how David prays to God. It says in verse 6, Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift yourself up against the fury of my enemies. Awake for me, you have appointed a judgment. Let the assembly of the peoples be gathered about you. <coughs> Over it, return on high. Now what David is describing, especially right here in verse 7 where he says, let the assembly uh, of the people be gathered. This is a judgment scene. What, what David is asking God to do is he's saying, bring all the people around and I want, could you just judge all of them? I want the truth to come out. Who's righteous? Who's not righteous? Who's telling the truth? Who's not telling the truth? God, would you please do this? Would you please work in this way so we can see who's lying and who's telling the truth? David even says in verse 8, Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to the integrity that is in me. Now, when you read that at first, if you react anything like me, you think, wait, judge me according to my righteousness. David, I, you're not a sinless guy. You're, I've read 
Romans 3, where Paul says no one is righteous. Everyone is unrighteous. Well, this is not exactly the idea that David is portraying here. He's saying, he's stating that in this particular instance, when his name was slandered, he was righteous. He was not to blame. And he's saying, in general, but David is claiming, I am a man with integrity that seeks after the way of God. I seek to live according to the law. That's what David is trying to get at here. And he is pleading with God, God, you're the judge. You enforce the law. Please do it now so the truth will come out. Now, God appears as a judge in this scene, and I think we might need to deconstruct this a little bit because I I feel like when we think of God as judge, well, maybe you can just think of it in your own own head. When you think of God as a judge, does that elicit a, a positive or negative response in your mind? I asked quite a few people this question this last week, and most people, when they hear that, they kind of like, they cringe, like, Ugh, I don't necessarily like the idea of God as judge. So, so let, me, let me reframe it and explain it to you this way. So um, how many of you have been driving down the interstate, maybe driving down the highway, maybe you're a little bit late, maybe you just kind of have a heavy foot, you're kind of pushing the speed limit a little bit right, you're driving, and all of a sudden in your rearview mirror, you see red and blue flashing lights, and you're like, no. Come on, you've got to be kidding me. Has anyone been there before, okay? You, three people have been pulled over. You guys are a bunch of liars. God, come and judge these people. Who's true? Who's unrighteous? I'm questioning all of your integrity. It's just not right. I've been pulled over like 15 times in my life. Anyway, so the idea is... <laughs> For those three of you who have done this, the idea is you see cops in your rearview mirror and you're like, you've got to be kidding. This is so annoying. Why are they enforcing these laws upon me? It's cramping my style. It's like inhibiting my freedom to do what I want when I want. You don't like that. It's like a negative emotion toward this. It's so annoying in the moment. Now, let me draw out another scenario. Uh, I, I read an article just the other day and, and then watched a, a video that paired with it. Of It happened a couple months ago in Chicago. There was a hostage situation. There's actually a video from police of them breaking into a house where there was a hostage situation where a man uh, was holding a woman as a hostage, and sh- they come in and they disarm this man, and they come and save this woman. Now, imagine what this woman saw when he saw when she what she thought when she saw these law enforcement officers. Was she thinking, oh crap, here they are again? No, she's thinking, she's thinking, here's my saviors. This is my hope. These people are going to come save me. This is going to be relief for me. This woman's response to law enforcement is quite different than our response to getting pulled over on a highway because this woman was in desperate need. I believe that when we think of God, most of us kind of cringe because we feel like God is judge. We kind of cringe because we think of him as kind of cramping our style or enforcing something on us that we don't want or being okay on our own. We want freedom, and and that's not really a part of God that we want to talk about as judge. But Psalm 7 paints God as judge as being good news for his people. It's saving for his people. As a matter of fact, the majority of the times that you see God coming on the scene as a judge 
in the Psalms for his people. It's good news for them. He's saving his own people. So as we refer to God judging specifically in Psalm 7, don't have a getting pulled over by the police kind of attitude. Maybe think of being a hostage saved by a law enforcement. So if God is a judge, if that's good news, what exactly are we supposed to apply from this section? Like, are we supposed to pray for God's judgment? If someone wrongs us, should we pray for God to rise up against them as an enemy? It starts to get kind of sticky, you see. Some of us have people in our lives who have wronged us to varying degrees, and I'm sure some of you are thinking here, wait, can I pray that God would judge them? Can I pray that God's going to break their teeth like he says he's going to do in Psalm 3? Is that okay to do? Well, let's just, let's talk about this a little bit to get some clarity. Now, there are a series of psalms within the entire book of Psalms that are called imprecatory psalms, okay? And these are the the sections of psalms that are written where the author, uh, the author who's writing um, prays for God's judgment on other people. He prays for God's judgment to come down on usually a group of other people. And this part of Psalm 7, specifically verse 6 here, is considered to be imprecatory. Now, the question is, is in this day and age, should we be people who pray these imprecatory psalms? Now, before you go and say, well, it's in the Bible, I should do what's in the Bible, let me let me just paint a little bit bigger picture before we give a clear yes or no. I want you to think about David's actions and his lifestyle in general before we go on to answer that question. Think about how David treated Saul. You may remember the story of King Saul, the man who hated David, the man who slandered David, the man who chased after him and literally tried to chase him down to take his life away. He hated him in every possible way. He turned people against him and he was trying to take his very his own or he was trying to take David's very life. And what does David do when he has a chance when they're in a cave and Saul is there and he's vulnerable? David could kill him without anyone knowing. What does David do? He spares his life, right? He'd been wronged by him. What about someone else that David had been wronged by? What about his own son, Absalom? His own son, Absalom, who who chased after him. We learned that in Psalm 3 about a month ago where his son was chasing him down and, and didn't want anything to do with him. He'd completely turned against him. He was pursuing him. He'd betrayed him. And then, as we read in, in, in 2 Samuel, we read as David's talking to his military officers as they're about ready to meet Absalom's men, what does he say? He says, hey guys, be gentle with Absalom specifically. When he's wronged, he showed grace to him. And what about Shimei? Maybe a little bit more obscure story, but this man cursed and slandered David, but later on, um, just a handful of paragraphs later in the text, he comes back and he says that he wants... uh, to ask for forgiveness from David. And what does David do? He extends forgiveness to him. Some consider David the least vengeful man in the Old Testament. Well, what about the New Testament? What does Jesus tell us to do? Well, he tells us to love our enemies, right? He tells us to pray for those who persecute us. Jesus does not lead first with imprecations, but he leads with love and grace. And so the call for those of us who are wronged, is to first love 
those people. Now, now, let me give a quick caveat here. This does not mean let those people walk all over you. It does not mean to let them do whatever they want, whenever they want to harm you. It also doesn't mean to recklessly and haphazardly move back into a relationship with someone who is maybe unhealthy or, or dangerous to you. It's not saying that, but it's in saying in whatever interactions you may or must have with them, do them with the love of Christ. Do them with that kind of love. And if there is a time to pray imprecatory prayers, which I believe there may be every, every once in a while, uh, I came across some helpful, uh, just contextual pieces that a pastor named Sam Storms from Oklahoma City wrote out to just to consider, like, when might it be okay? He wrote this about um, David praying these psalms. He said there's four of them. He said, first, when David prays imprecations, he has almost always spent extended time calling them to repentance beforehand. Number two, these prayers are not personal vengeance or payback. They are prayers that God would deal justly with those people. Number three, David was a king, so he was a representative of God on earth. If David was attacked, he was defending God's honor and asking God to judge them. And number four, imprecations are prayers based on God's divine promises, asking God to do what he had already promised to do. So in other words, if there is a time to ever pray these imprecatory prayers, your heart must be pure. You must not have a sense of personal vengeance or personal attack, but one that defends God's honor and God's glory. And the hope is that this person, first and foremost, would be repentant and turn back to God. There may be some times where we can, but I guarantee you they are not often. So we heard what Jesus said, how he told us to love our enemies. What did Jesus do? Well, if David was a slandered saint, think about Jesus. He was the ultimate slandered saint. Perfect in every way. Not possible to be able to bring a guilty charge against him. You remember the story of Jesus toward the end of his life. Consider a couple of these verses. Mark 3.22, it says, And the scribes came down from Jerusalem and were saying, He's possessed by Beelzebul and by the prince of demons. He casts out demons. He was being slandered. Matthew 26, it says, Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard this blasphemy. What is your judgment? And they answered, he deserves death. Then they spit in his face and struck him, and some slapped him, saying, prophesy to us, you Christ. What is it that struck you? One more, Mark 15, it says, and those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from that cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, he saved others, he can't save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. Jesus gave an example of loving his enemies amidst ultimate slander. And you better believe he had the power to take them down. He could have put them in their place. He could have proven them wrong. But he stayed silent and he let his actions do the talking. 
you know, as we look at the slander Jesus, even as you read some of these verses, if you're a follower of Jesus in here, I'm sure your emotions welled up a little bit and you're like, man, how dare they? You kind of get a sense of anger and contempt for these people. And you're like, what? how could they be saying that to Jesus? Didn't they know? And then we're reminded of the truth. The truth about ourselves, which maybe is most clearly or most poetically said in one of my favorite worship songs and one of the verses of how deep the Father's love for us. Listen to this. In the second verse, it says, Behold the man upon the cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. Providence, we're the sinful ones. We're the unrighteous ones. We're the slanderers. Our sin, every thought, word, action that has been laced with any kind of sin, those are the things that held Jesus, put Jesus on the cross and held him there. We're guilty. And he took our slander carried our sin and he suffered and died in our place so that we in turn could be called the righteous ones. We're the slanderers. Like we're as bad as your coworker who threw you under the bus. We're as bad as your, your friend or your ex-friend who's lying about you. We're as bad as, as the people who are maybe mocking you or hating you because of the way that you follow Jesus. And when God, the judge, moves to action, we should all be sitting there in the chair deserving of a guilty verdict because it's what we deserve because we have slandered him. But instead, Jesus gets up and he takes a seat in that chair and he takes the verdict for us, the guilty verdict, which he paid for on the cross. He was seen as unrighteous so we could be made righteous. He hung there as a penalty for our sins so we could get off and have our sins forgiven. Jesus paid the ultimate price, and now because of that, we have gained his perfect resume when we didn't deserve it, but he has given us in love and grace this very thing. That's how God has acted toward us as a judge, and that's what Jesus has done for us. Jesus' psalm in response to slander is quite a psalm. Amen? And the heart is the same as David in this psalm. In verse 9, he said, Let the evil of the wicked come to an end, and may you establish righteousness. Jesus essentially uh, made evil and wickedness come to an end on the cross. He pronounced a judgment on wickedness there, and then he also, as it says here, he, he established the righteous through his righteousness and his death. He gave us his perfection and his righteousness, and he established us as righteous. Providence, when you're slandered, could you very simply remember how Jesus has treated you when you've slandered him? How could we be people who respond uh, in a way that points to the gospel, that points to both the fact that God does hate sin and it's wrong, it's not okay, but at the same time that we could move toward people or act toward people in love and grace. 
Now, I want to quickly hit these last couple of verses because they're vital. Because I think some of you might be thinking, okay, wait, so what, I just pray and then like let God do his thing. How's, what, what am I supposed to expect from God in this? Well, I want to, this is just one aspect of how God's judgment takes, uh, takes place. And so I want to look at uh, this last point, point three, on letting God take action. This is what David does. So in verse 12, it says this. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. Now, if you are someone in here who has been slandered in in a a pretty awful way, I, I want you to know from these verses here that God doesn't like that. God is not okay with that person's actions toward you. He's preparing to judge these unrepentant slanderers. He doesn't go lightly on this. He's actually going to bring judgment down on this. And it may actually not be exactly in the way that you like it. It may not be exactly, oftentimes it's not exactly on our timeline or as quickly or as fast as we want it. But but I want you to know that God sees you. He hears you. If you're a follower of Jesus, he protects you like a father protects his son or his daughter because that's exactly how he sees you, a son or daughter who he unconditionally loves and protects. You see, when, when someone pushes a kid of mine in the Chick-fil-A play place and my wife sees it, she goes into mama bear mode, okay? And let's just say this. God, in this passage right here, it, He makes my wife's mama bear mode look like teddy bear mode. It says in these verses that he's sharpening his sword. It's getting his bow and arrow ready. This is not light stuff. Then This is interesting how he says that that God defends us as a judge if we are in Christ. Uh, Let's read the next couple of verses. It says, Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. He makes a pit, digging it out. And falls into the hole that he has made. His mischief returns upon his own head. And on his own skull, his violence descends. Did did you see how that plays out? There's a a wicked man, a a slanderous man or woman. And what they do is they plot to try to lift themselves up by taking you down. That's what slander is. And they're trying to, to, to set this trap for you to fall into. But they're stealing their own fate. The trap that they build, they eventually fall into themselves. You know, God created this world to function correctly, to function well when people live righteously. Now, unfortunately, we're in a world of sin, and so we can't really see that. But but when you live righteously, if everyone were to be able to live righteously, the world should be able to function properly. But if you dwell in sin and slander, things will go wrong. Things will go south at some point. This is essentially the same logic as James in chapter 1 when he says in verse 14, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then that desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's fully grown, brings death. You see this slander for that person. It's, it's a seed of sin. They plant it. They water it. They, they let it grow, and eventually it brings death. Providence, if you've been wronged, if you've been slandered, 
could you take refuge in Jesus? Because their sin, although it may even appear to be winning at the moment, it will not last. God will allow them to dig a pit, to dig a hole that they could eventually fall into. That's how God's judgment is said to work here. Commentator Derek Kidner states it this way in a a pretty simple way. He says, evil is more disastrous to the evildoer than the suffering he inflicts on others. Providence, don't be fooled into thinking that the che- that cheaters and liars and slanders of the world are, are getting away and it's only going to get better and better and better for them. They are effectively digging their own grave. And judgment is actually coming in. It may uh, wait a while. It may not be today, but it is actually coming. And God the judge, if you're in Christ, he has saved you. He will save you. He will come on your behalf, acting on your behalf. And while your circumstances may not change today and may not change tomorrow, he's calling you to to trust in him because he is your good judge and your good defender. The psalm our life is writing when we're slandered Could it be one of utter dependence on God? Could our psalm be one that states that we adamantly turn to God, that we we remember the truth of the gospel, that we were once slanderers and now we've been saved? And could we be a people that pray fervently and let God take action, ultimately trusting that he will work on our behalf? If not today, maybe tomorrow, and if not tomorrow, maybe on that final day. And at the end of the day, may the psalm, that we live out in response to being wronged and in the very same way that David's psalm does in Psalm 7 where he says, I will give thanks to the Lord, the thanks due to his righteousness, and I will sing praise to the name of the Lord, the Most High. Let me pray. God, uh, we are thankful for psalms like this that don't seem pleasant at first. God, we're thankful uh, that you uh, know our scenario that you have um, experienced pain, that you've experienced slander. And as we looked at last week, God, you can relate to us. You've experienced temptation. You've experienced the worst of the worst pain. And could we be a people who turn to you knowing that you are there and knowing that you care, knowing that you move toward us? God, could you help us be a people who guard our own tongues from slander? God, could you help us be a people who embrace the gospel fully and understanding uh, that, God, we can extend grace and love to others because it has been extended to us first. Jesus, could the psalm that our church writes in the place of of being wronged and and being slandered be one that, that just points to you, that points to you, Lord Most High, that points to the goodness of your gospel, and that points to you as being our Savior, our only hope, and our refuge. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.